0: Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now!. The climate crisis, the curtailment of reproductive rights, authoritarianism. These threats aren't looming, they're here now. If you believe Democracy Now!'s reporting on these issues is essential, please sign up for a monthly gift of or even $20. Go to democracynow.org to make your donation right away. Oh, and your gift will be matched dollar for dollar by a generous donor. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now!
1: We condemn what has been done to us, which we consider as a crime against humanity. Because destroying our culture, uprooting our people, it's not a way of letting people live as, as human beings.
0: Pressure is growing on Britain and the United States to pay reparations and apologize for forcibly removing the residents of the Chagos Islands in the Indian Ocean more than a half century ago so the United States could build a military base on the island of Diego Garcia. We'll speak with a leading Chagosian activist. Then to New Mexico, where a Trump supporter wearing a MAGA hat opened fire on an indigenous-led protest against the re- installation of a statue honoring a 16th century Spanish conquistador. One indigenous climate activist was shot and needed to be airlifted for emergency surgery. We'll get the latest. Then a shocking new report estimates some 35,000 people in the United States have been killed at the hands of U.S. law enforcement since the year 2000. We'll speak to two researchers with the La Raza Database Research Project, which has revealed the number of brown and black people killed by police may be more than double the amount. That has been widely reported.
2: The RASA Database Project, um goal is to provide as accurate a count of the deaths of uh, Latinos and other persons of color um, by or at the hands of police. It's a, a breakthrough study that expands on the data that's already being collected by other resources.
0: All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The U.N. Security Council voted Monday to deploy multinational armed forces to Haiti as the island nation combats worsening gang violence. The intervention, which came at the repeated request of U.S.-backed Haitian Prime Minister Ariel Henry, will be led by Kenya, marking the first deployment of international security forces to Haiti in nearly 20 years. The proposal received 13 votes in favor, with Russia and China abstaining. The resolution was drafted by the United States and Ecuador, allowing foreign troops to remain in Haiti for a year with a review after nine months. The Biden administration pledged at least $100 million to fund the operation. This is the United States Deputy Ambassador to the UN, Jeffrey De Laurentiis.
3: This mission comes at the request of the Haitian government and Haitian civil society to address the insecurity and dire humanitarian crisis the country has faced for far too long. The deployment of this mission will help to support Haiti's critical near-term needs and to foster the security conditions necessary for the country to advance long-term stability.
0: Kenya had previously offered to contribute 1,000 police officers. The Bahamas, Jamaica, Antigua, and Barbuda have also vowed to send forces. Many Haitians have opposed the move due to the disastrous history of UN, U.S. and foreign interventions in Haiti, a UN mission that left Haiti in 2017 behind an outbreak of cholera that killed some 10,000 people. UN officials were also accused of widespread sexual violence, including the abuse of children. Amnesty International's voiced concerns about the intervention in Kenyan-led armed forces, recently citing Kenya's continued unlawful use of force against protesters. Meanwhile, peace activists have denounced the move as a U.S.-led invasion. In 2021, the U.S. special envoy to Haiti resigned to protest the Biden administration's policies in Haiti. In a resignation letter, the longtime diplomat Daniel Foote wrote, What our Haitian friends really want and need is the opportunity to chart the their own course without international puppeteering and favored candidates, but with genuine support for that course. Unquote. No date's been confirmed for the deployment, but U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken recently said it could begin within months. A United Nations mission has arrived in Nagorno-Karabakh for the first time in 30 years, as Armenia's government warns nearly all the territory's population of 120,000 ethnic Armenians has fled following Azerbaijan's military blitz to seize the territory in September. A U.N. official in Armenia's capital said registration centers have been overwhelmed with huge numbers of exhausted and frightened refugees, a third of whom are children.
4: People are tired. This is a situation where they've lived under nine months of blockade. It's not something that has just happened where you pick up and you go. They've suffered nine months of blockade already, and when they come in, they're full of anxiety. They are scared, they're frightened, and they want answers. They want answers as to what's going
0: to happen next. Armenia's accused Azerbaijan of ethnic cleansing. On Monday, Armenia's European Union envoy urged Western nations to sanction Azerbaijan, including its lucrative oil and gas industry, and requested military aid for Armenia. Here in the United States, the Supreme Court opens its new term Monday hearing oral arguments in a case that will determine who is eligible for reduced prison sentences under the First Step Act, which rolls back mandatory minimum sentences for certain people convicted of nonviolent drug charges. Today, Supreme Court justices are hearing a case brought by a predatory payday lending group challenging the leadership structure of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Legal experts warn the outcome of the case could undermine other regulatory agencies and federal programs, including Medicare and Social Security. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court has denied an appeal without comment by Texas death row prisoner Robert Robertson, who has always maintained his innocence. He was convicted in 2003 of murdering his two-year-old daughter. His lawyers say he was convicted on the basis of testimony by forensic experts who'd cited the shaken baby syndrome hypothesis, which was popularized in the early 2000s, but never scientifically validated. Last month, the New Jersey appeals court ruled the theory is junk science. In more news from the Supreme Court, Justice Clarence Thomas recused himself from a case Monday involving former Trump legal adviser John Eastman, who formerly served as a law clerk for Thomas. This follows reports Justice Thomas's wife, the Republican activist Ginny Thomas, corresponded with Eastman ahead of the January 6, 2021 insurrection about efforts to reverse the results of the 2020 election to keep Trump in power. Justice Thomas, however, did not recuse himself from a case backed by New York landlords chatt- Challenging the city's rent stabilization policies, the anti-corruption group The Revolving Door Project wrote in response, quote, Justice Thomas's billionaire benefactor Harlan Crow, has a vested interest in weakening rent control laws across the country to buttress his real estate empire's profits, unquote. On Capitol Hill, Republican Florida Congressmember Matt Gates introduced a resolution Monday to remove House Speaker Kevin McCarthy from his leadership position. Gates and other far-right Republicans blasted McCarthy after he brokered a deal on a short-term funding bill that averted a government shutdown. Gates also blames McCarthy for making a, quote, secret Ukraine side deal with Democrats, which McCarthy denies. Vice President Kamala Harris is swearing in a new member of California's Senate delegation today following the death of long-term Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein last week. LaFonza Butler becomes the first openly lesbian black senator and just the third black woman to serve in the Senate in U.S. history. Donald Trump appeared in a Manhattan courtroom Monday for the start of a civil trial brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James. Trump and his business partners, including his adult sons, Eric and Donald Trump Jr., are accused of fraudulently inflating the value of the Trump Organization's assets by billions to obtain loans and favorable business deals. James is seeking to fine Trump $250 million and is asking for a permanent ban on Trump family members running a business in New York.
5: No matter how powerful you are, no matter how much money you think you may have, no one is above the law, and it is my responsibility and my duty and my job to enforce it. The
0: law is both powerful and fragile, and today in court, we will prove our case. Trump will receive a bench trial presided over by New York Supreme Court Justice Arthur Ngoran after Trump's lawyers did not request a jury trial. Speaking to reporters outside the court Monday, Trump assailed Attorney General James, who is African American, as a racist and called Judge Ngoran a disgrace.
6: He's a Democrat operative and he's a disgrace to people that call themselves judges. He's a judge. That should be disbarred. This is a judge that should be out of office. This is a judge that some people say could be charged criminally for what he's
2: doing.
0: On Monday, over 30 advocacy groups, including CREW—that's Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington and Public Citizen—published an open letter calling for the protection of juries in Trump's four ongoing criminal cases. The letter cites Trump's harassment of jurors in Georgia and Washington, D.C., adding, quote, "...these attacks threaten centuries-old American institutions designed by the framers to hold to account any leader who would be king," unquote. The U.S. Department of Labor has launched an investigation into child labor at poultry processors, Purdue and Tyson Foods. The probe comes after lawmakers grilled the head of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration about reports in The New York Times about migrant children getting burned and maimed on the job at Purdue and Tyson slaughterhouses. This is North Carolina Democratic Congressmember Alma Adams, the ranking Democrat on House Workforce Protection Subcommittee, whose repeated requests for a hearing on child labor violations have gone ignored. ignored by the committee's Republican chair, Virginia Fox.
6: Thanks to recent news investigations, we also know that children, especially unaccompanied migrant children, have been suffering all manner of harms in jobs that they should not be working on in the first place. But but take a closer look at, at those stories. Chemicals so caustic that they burn through multiple layers of gloves, machines without guards to prevent people's arms or hands from getting mangled, food dust and cleaning chemical fumes that irritate the sinuses and lungs. These stories are not only about children in desperate circumstances, they're also about workplaces that are dangerous to, to people of all ages.
0: To see our interview with the New York Times, Hannah Dreyer, about her investigation into child labor in the United States, go to democracynow.org. The World health organizations approved the use of a more affordable and highly effective vaccine against malaria. WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus announced the recommendation Monday.
6: In areas with seasonal transmission, it reduced symptomatic cases of malaria by 75 percent in the 12 months following a three dose series of the vaccine.
0: The vaccine was developed by Oxford University as only the second malaria vaccine to be recommended by the WHO. Malaria is among the world's deadliest infectious diseases, and the mosquito that carries it has been described as the world's deadliest animal. In 2021, over half a million people, largely children under the age of five, died of malaria, the vast majority of them in Africa. In California, the longtime community leader and beloved bilingual newspaper publisher Dolores Sanchez has died at the age of 87. For nearly four decades, Sanchez presided over Eastern Group Publications, which operated 11 newspapers bringing news to Latinx communities on Los Angeles' east side and neighboring cities. And press freedom groups are calling on Congress to pass new legislation protecting media workers on the fifth anniversary of the state-sponsored killing of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi by Saudi Arabia and Istanbul in 2018. The Khashoggi Act, introduced Monday, would allow lawsuits in the United States against governments implicated in extraterritorial repression. The separate Khashoggi resolution pledges U.S. action to hold the Saudi government accountable for human rights abuses. On Monday, Elected officials in Los Angeles welcome friends and family of Jamel Khashoggi to a street dedication ceremony on a stretch of Wilshire Boulevard outside the consulate of Saudi Arabia. A sign declaring the space Jamel Khashoggi Square reads, quote, a journalist and advocate for human rights slain by the Saudi government, unquote. In Washington, D.C., the National Press Club held a moment of silence to remember Khashoggi and other journalists whose killings had gone unpunished. Joining the ceremony was Michael Omerman, director of research for Israel-Palestine at Dawn, the organization founded by Jamal Khashoggi.
2: Whereas Jamal's death outraged the world and seemed for a moment to inject human rights into U.S. foreign policy in the MENA region, today, unfortunately, that no longer seems to be the case. That's most apparent in Saudi Arabia, but not only. Following the killing of Shireen Abu Akleh, we saw how the US government literally tried to redefine accountability in order to shield an ally from scrutiny. This is unacceptable. Jamal, Jamal was murdered for the power of his ideas, and because even in the face of mortal danger, he refused to remain silent.
0: And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan González in Chicago. Hi, Juan.
6: Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world.
0: Well, pressure is growing on Britain and the United States to pay reparations and apologize for expelling residents of the Chagos Archipelago in the Indian Ocean half a century ago so the United States could build a major military base on the island of Diego Garcia, which is located halfway between Africa and Indonesia, and about a thousand miles south of India. The U.S. base at Diego Garcia played a key role in the U.S. invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. For over 50 years, Chagossian people have been attempting to return home, but their efforts have been blocked by both the U.K. and the United States. Earlier this year, Human Rights Watch accused the two governments of committing crimes against humanity. In a moment, we'll be joined by a prominent Chagosian activist who's here in the United States visiting to meet with U.S. lawmakers and Biden administration officials. But first, let's turn to an excerpt of a video produced by Human Rights Watch titled The Last British Colony in Africa, How Chagosians Were Forced Off Their Homeland. In the 1960s, Britain ruled over
7: about 18 countries and three territories in Africa.
2: Many African states were already engaged in the process of starting to fight for their independence. Mauritius was fully engaged in this process.
7: Britain granted independence to Mauritius in 1968, but with a major caveat, the UK would keep the Chagos archipelago for a small price.
3: US government officials in the era of decolonization were growing concerned about losing control of the world. So a group of officials in the US Navy developed a plan to identify small islands around the world, and Diego Garcia became the prime island on which they wanted to build a base.
7: Diego Garcia is one of the main islands in the Chagos archipelago, where many families had lived for generations.
3: The secret deal began being worked out by the U.S. and British governments in the early 1960s, where the U.S. government insists to the British that we want this base, and we want it without any local population. The British government agrees to do the dirty work of getting rid of the Chagosians in exchange for a wiping away $14 million in debt that the British government owes the U.S. government.
7: British officials feared that if they acknowledged the permanent population of Chagos, they would have to report to the UN about the new colony they had created.
0: What the British do in 1965
2: is recharacterize the entire population of the Chagos archipelago as contract labourers, not a permanent population, to create
1: the ruse that there's no population.
7: Between 1968 and 1973, the British government removed about 1,500 people from the occupant Archipelago to Mauritius and to the Seychelles. They were not given a choice.
4: The only thing I saw my mother take with her was a little chest to put our clothes in it and a mattress. That's all. Everything else we left
0: there. They put all the dogs into a chamber and gassed them until they died. An excerpt from a video by Human Rights Watch titled The Last British Colony in Africa, How Chagosians Were Fossed Off Their Homeland. One of the voices featured in that clip was David Vine, a professor at American University in Washington, D.C., author of Island of Shame, The Secret History of the U.S. Military on Diego Garcia. Professor Vine is also the author of Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World. He's joining us now from New York, along with Olivier Bancolt, who is the chair of the Chagos Refugees Group, the organization representing most Chagosians in exile. His recent article for Open democracy is titled The U.S. and U.K. Stole Our Homes. Fifty years on, we're still being denied justice. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Let's begin with Olivier Banco. Thanks so much for being with us. Explain morning. why you're here in the United States, and in fact, even what happened to your own family half a century ago that you're still demanding a correction for, as well as all of the Chagossians living in exile.
1: First of all, good morning, Hemi. First of all, thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk on behalf of my people. The reason we are here in the United States is to find out uh, from uh, the Biden administration and apologize for what wrong had been done to the Sagotian people. I think that the, U- the U.S. government needs to change their policy uh, uh, concerning human rights for Sagotian people who have been recruited. Uh, we want uh, that the, the people of the United States understand our position. As far as our international uh, uh, human rights uh, had been banished for so many years, and we want justice to be done. We want that the U.S. is fu- uh, fully responsible for what happened to our people. Because of the peace, we had been having a, a nightmare uh, a story. And uh, we want uh, them to recognize and to put an end and to apologize for all wrongs that they did. And started by uh, uh, making some reparation for our people, like compensation and helping to resettle Sagotian on Chagos. My story, I myself, I was born on Peros Banos, one of the uh, island of Ch- Chagos Aspilago, and I was expelled in 1968. The reason because I have, uh, our family have to come to Mauritius to have treatment for, for my sister who had been hurt by a will card. But unfortunately, after three months, my sister passed away. And when my mom and dad decided to return because we have left all our belongings there in a view to return, when we asked to re, uh, been asked to return, we have learned that it will be impossible for us because the island had been given to America. And it is the, the wrong that we had been suffered, not being, uh, on our birthplace, being away from where we were born. And this is one of the reasons I want just to get more awareness of the situation and put their responsibility toward uh, their, their, our people.
6: And Olivier Boncourt, uh, who have you met with in Washington among our, the leaders in the United States? And do you, do you sense any any support for your demands in Congress?
1: Yes, of course, we are very hopeful to say that we have been able to meet with many people, especially members of Congress, uh, Congress, uh, 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 members of Congress. and we met also with officials from the uh, State Department, because it's, uh, uh, according to them, it's the first time that, that, that they hear from Sagoshin what uh, uh, our demands are. The most important is con- concerning our fundamental rights and our dignity as a people. If we are a people, according to Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that everywhere, if you were born on a place, you have the right to live on the place. And we cannot accept that other people can live on our place whereas we, we are uh, declared as person non, non grata. This is the main occasion. And we want to have the support of congressmen Uh, uh, in order to find out how to present something like a letter, uh, a resolution, or even uh, an hearing to explain our situation and to let uh, the U.S. government shoulder their responsibility toward our Sagotian people
6: you talk about the, uh, the history of the inhabitants of the Chagos Islands, uh, that, uh, the, the long-term history that rebuts this contention of the U.S. and Britain that there were only contract laborers there in the 60s?
1: Yeah, uh, both of the government, U.K. and U.S., had lies, because they all say that before the installation of the U.S. military base, they were not permanent habitants. Inhabitant there. It's totally and true because people were living for more than five generations I give my own example. I was born there. My father, my mother, my grandfather, my grandmother Even my great-grandmother were born there and we were not we have never been contactual workers We were permanent inhabitant, uh, And life for us is very wonderful because we were living in peace and harmony we have our culture we have our house we have our job and after working hours we used to go fishing and we all live as one family suddenly they just decided to choose Jigugasha because it is a very strategic point place and it is a very well situated they decided to build a US military base on Jigugasha but forget about the fundamental rights of our people
0: I want to play some clips of other Chagosian voices. This is Aline Louis speaking to Human Rights Watch about her life in Chagos before she was forcibly removed from her homeland. Life in Chagos for people was like living as one family. Everything we share, even the food we cook, we share. If there is a problem, there is always someone to help. And this is Eliane Baptiste uh, talking about her family story.
7: I moved to the UK when I was 15 years old, but my parents stayed in Mauritius. In the 1960s, hundreds of Chagossians, including my mom, were forced to leave the Chagos archipelago or not allowed to return because the British and U.S. governments wanted to make space for a U.S. military base. That U.K.-U.S. pact had a detrimental impact for those living on the islands as well as for future generations, causing many families to be divided. The British granted British citizenship to the Chagossians and the first generations, which allowed people like my sisters and I to move to the UK. But not everyone had the chance to because there were limitations and restrictions, such as the age of the first generations and the spousal visas. My mom's siblings were not born on the Chagos Islands so they and my cousins are not eligible for the British citizenship. It just makes me think that if, if the Shagoshans were not deported, if my family, my grandparents, my mom were allowed back on the islands,
0: none of this would have happened. That's uh, Elian Baptiste. these voices uh Professor David Vine um when you hear the pain of what was lost, first of all, I mean, explain from the beginning, many have called this a crime against humanity the u s and u k moving in the u s building this military base, and um aside from just- b- building that military base, saying no Chagosians could live there
3: Good morning a- Amy and Juan. Indeed, this is a crime against humanity, a fundamentally racist crime against humanity that was masterminded from the beginning by U.S. government officials who seized upon the idea of building a base on Diego Garcia and getting rid of the Chagosians. And then they proceeded to pay the British government secretly $14 million dollars to basically do the dirty work of getting rid of the Chagossians and then proceeded to orchestrate the expulsion over the course of several years in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And from the beginning, the U.S. government has had the power. They had the power to exile the Chagossians. And now the Biden administration has the power to finally make this right. This is a, an outrage, a, a crime against humanity indeed, That should have been corrected, should never have happened, should have been corrected years ago by prior administrations. But the Biden administration now has the ability to show the world at a time when the Biden administration is rightly criticizing other governments and their human rights records, Saudi Arabia, China, among others. At this time, the Biden administration has the ability to change U.S. policy and finally provide justice to the Chagosians by allowing them to return home, by providing compensation, by assisting with the resettlement of the Chagossians in the land of their ancestors, in their homeland, the, la- the land that has been taken from them.
6: Uh, and Professor Vine, uh, uh, sadly, the, the example of what happened with the Chagossians is not unique. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about this, these enormous bases that the United States has a system around the world, places like Okinawa, Vieques, Hawaii, of course, the Philippines back in the days of Subic Bay, uh, Guam, where the military basically runs roughshod over the local populations?
3: It's true, and there are more than 20 cases in which the U.S. military has displaced local people, often indigenous people like the Chagosians, as part of the creation or expansion of U.S. military bases around the world. And that's just since the end of the 19th century. Of course, during the uh, 18th and 19th centuries, the U.S. Army in particular displaced millions of Native American peoples across the North American continent as part of the colonization and conquest of the continent. Uh, The Chagosians are not alone. Uh, But there is another case that is sadly telling. Uh, In 1946, in islands that the U.S. Navy occupied, the Ogasawara Islands, small islands that are now part of Japan, the U.S. Navy actually assisted a local population, mostly white local population of U.S. ancestry, in returning to their homes to live side by side with what was then a U.S. Navy base, they assisted in setting up schools. They assisted in setting up local government. They assisted in setting up a local economy. If, if the U.S. Navy, if the U.S. military, if the U.S. government can help a mostly white population of U.S. ancestry return to their homeland, their homes in 1946, surely the U.S. military, the Biden administration, can do the same for the Chagossians, a population of mostly African, and Indian ancestry return to their homes, their homeland, the land of their ancestors today.
0: Uh, We just have a minute, but Olivier Bancolt, your message to people here in the United States, uh, as well as around the world.
1: My message, on behalf of my people, is to find out the way. We want as all human beings to be able to live in peace and harmony. As I said, that it's clear in the mention in the International Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that everyone has the right to live on his, his birthplace. We want our right to be recognized. We want that we can pay tribute to all our parents who are buried in Chagos, which we did not have access to the grave. I just give you one example. We, as a Goshen, we are not allowed to go to Chagos to pay tribute to our parents buried there. While in Point Cano, in Can- Cannon Point in jigogosha we have a, a military dog cemetery who are well maintained. How would you consider that? My message to the world, we are not asking less or more. We are asking about our rights. And we want the Biden administration to apologize and to make reparation for what they did wrong uh, to our people. And this is our message. And we want to have more awareness, ask people to give us more support on our action.
0: Olivia Bancolta, I want to thank you for being with us, chair of the Chagos Refugees Group, and David Vine, professor at American University, author of Island of Shame, The Secret History of the U.S. Military on Diego Garcia. This is Democracy Now! When we come back, we go to New Mexico, where a Trump supporter wearing a MAGA hat opened fire on an indigenous-led protest against the reinstallation of a statue honoring a 16th-century Spanish conquistador. One indigenous climate activist was shot and needed to be airlifted for emergency surgery. We'll speak to one of the indigenous activists who he waved a gun at but didn't shoot or kill. Stay with us. Music by Chagosian musician Charlizey Alexis, one of the founders of the Chagos Refugee Group. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan González. In New Mexico, a 23-year-old white supporter of Donald Trump has been charged with attempted murder for shooting an indigenous activist last week during a protest over the reinstallation of a statue of the violent Spanish conquistador Juan de Oñate. The shooting occurred in the city of Española, New Mexico. The gunman, who was wearing a red MAGA hat, opened fire and shot Jacob Johns, who had to be airlifted to a hospital in Albuquerque for emergency surgery. Johns is an indigenous activist, muralist, artist, and father. In two months, he's planning to lead the indigenous Wisdom Keepers delegation at the U.N. Climate Summit in Dubai, COP28, to advocate for indigenous solutions to climate change. A GoFundMe collection to help with his medical expenses has already raised over 200 $1000. The shooting occurred while he and other indigenous activists were protesting plans to reinstall a statue honoring the 16th century conquistador Juan de Oñate, New Mexico's first colonial governor who in 1599 ordered a massacre that killed between 800 and 1000 Acoma indigenous people. 3 years ago in June 2020, a former Albuquerque city council candidate was arrested for shooting a protester four times at a demonstration calling for the removal of another Juan de Oñate statue. Local and state officials in New Mexico reportedly ignored warnings of potential gun violence ahead of Thursday's indigenous-led peaceful action in Española. This is Melanie Yazzie of the Red Nation.
4: Denise Williams, mother of shooting victim Scott Williams, who was targeted at a 2020 Oñate protest in Albuquerque, said prior to Thursday's event, she called Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's office, the office of U.S. Senator Martin Heinrich, New Mexico State Police, the office of the New Mexico Attorney General, all members of U.S. Congress representing Valencia County in New Mexico, and all New Mexico State representatives and senators from Valencia County, to warn them of the high chance of gun violence directed at attendees. State Senator Elizabeth Stefanix was the only one to respond. Immediately after the shooting, Scott Williams's father, Dan Williams, called the governor's office again to tell her that she, quote, had blood on her
0: hands for failing to properly respond to and prevent both shootings. During Thursday's protest in Española, New Mexico, the gunman also pointed a gun at Malaya Pachino, who joins us now from Albuquerque. Uh, Malaya, I know you are still suffering from the shock of what happened, the shooting of the indigenous activist and uh, the gunman waving his gun, you and others. Um, can you talk about your experience, what happened um then, and why you were all there in that peaceful action?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I just first want to say good morning um my experience well, I'll start with why we were there um they proposed to put up this statue, and there was a budget, a certain amount of money allotted. And I didn't feel it was right for our community money that could be spent on resources and support and our healing of our community to be spent on this statue. And so Thursday wasn't a protest. Thursday was a sunrise ceremony in the morning time, and it was a celebration. We came together and we prayed and we celebrated as a family that we were able to postpone this statue. (laughs)
6: Ha <laughs> ha. And Malai, could you uh, talk about who was proposing to to uh, to install this statue? Given the the horrific uh, history of Juan de Onate, in fact, he was. If you could tell our viewers and listeners a little bit about his legacy, he was so cruel that even the Spanish government, colonial government at the time, put him on trial, and they were obviously uh, extremely cruel toward the native populations. And uh, but uh, even he, they considered, had gone beyond the
5: pale. uh You know, <laughs> sorry, the uh, feed that I'm getting is cutting in and out a little bit. Um, so I didn't hear the whole question, but um, I, I heard you mention, you uh, asked me about Oñate and who he was as a man. Um, yes. You know, and that's a really interesting question, and it brings up a lot of controversy in our community because on one hand, there are the people whose ancestors and whose history was that violence that he committed and was brought from that pain, you know, of him and the suffering that he put our indigenous peoples through. And that's one side of it. And then on the other side of it, you know, we have Spanish people in our community, part of our valley, who he was their ancestry and he was the what they feel pride in you know and so there is a lot of division going on in our community and it is a really controversial thing um to talk about Onyate. and i think for me you know as important as it is to recognize his violence and how much he hurt people it was less about him as a man and more about the fact that i see pain and suffering in our community and I see how some funds for the missing and murdered indigenous women, some funds for our alarming rates of overdoses, our housing crisis, that feels more important than funding a statue being resurrected.
6: And the response of Governor Lujan to, uh, to calls for, uh, for her to be aware that there was possible violence, uh, how do you feel she responded in this situation?
5: Um, you know I haven't really uh, after the incident I've just been with family, so I haven't been looking at politicians' responses to the incident, but I do feel that they had a duty to protect us you know from the morning time the shooter was there and he was watching us and it was brought to the attention of the police that people felt uncomfortable with him there and So they had a duty to protect us. And it's my personal opinion that they did not do that, that when you see a rally of people and then you see an opposing side starting to form, that's you show up and they didn't show up for us. So that's that's what I have to say about that.
0: Malaya, you're 23. Apparently, this white gunman um, who shot Johns is 23 as well. Um, I wanted to turn to the Palestinian activist Mohammed al-Kurd, who spoke at the rally only 15 minutes before Jacob, before Jacob Johns was shot.
3: I am so disgusted by the people here who have nothing better to do, whose lives are so empty that they have nothing better to do than to celebrate the legacy of a murderous war criminal. Life could be so much better. You could build... A much better legacy. Yes, you you could wash your hands of this blood. Yeah. Yeah. And yet you decide to do this. Not not only should these statues come down, but all land must be given back.
0: Soon after Mohammed al-Kurd spoke, 15 minutes later, the gunman shot Jacob Johns, um, Malaya, you're still coping with the um, violence against all of you. Um, your response to him being charged with, what was it, attempted murder, um, and of the whole community right now, as um, there was such, as we just heard before, such knowledge of the possible threats of gun violence against your action—
5: Malaya. Sorry, the ending um, cut out just a little bit. Um,
0: If If you you could could respond to the um, charges. He's being charged the gunman with attempted murder. Um, uh, And also, if you could tell us um, how um, Jacob Johns is doing and how you're doing, because you all experienced both his shooting and the threatened shooting of you and others.
5: Um, you know, that's a really good question. I thank you for checking in on how we're all doing. It means a lot. I think that his charge for first degree attempted first degree murder and aggravated assault because he pointed the gun at me. I think that's fair because he came there and watching his attitude and the way he carried himself beforehand it felt like he was getting himself ready, Um, you know, and he would go to the altar and invade a sacred space, Um, you know. So it felt that way that there was this preparation on both sides and specifically for him, his own mental preparation, Um, you know. And I was able to, my father has been checking in with Jacob's family as much as we can. Last I heard, he's doing okay and he's recovering we just put out lots and lots of prayers that his breathing is good and his voice is good in the morning time he came and he sang us some songs and so i know as a community all we want to do is hear jacob sing again for us song like that and as far as i'm doing i'm okay because i have a community that is full of love and compassion and humanity So, you know, ever since this, there hasn't been a moment where I haven't been taken care of. So I'm blessed in that way.
0: Well, Malaya Pinchinho, I want to thank you so much for joining us um, from New Mexico Public Television. Uh, She attended Thursday's peaceful action over the planned reinstallation of a statue of the uh, infamously violent colonizer Juan de Oñate in Española, New Mexico. Coming up, we speak to two researchers with the La Raza Database Research Project that reveal the number of brown black people killed by police may be more than double the amount that's widely reported. Back in 30 seconds.
4: Trayendo atención a la discriminación adentro de esta nación porque esta situación es parte de una condición racista, clasista, disparan a la gente cuando están entre la vista afuera en la frontera o adentro en el centro solo por acento ahora está ausento el color de tu piel determina tu destino sistema racista impuesto por el que vino de otros lugares a tierras nativas encuentros fatales no tienen medidas. según policiales pero son mentiras estos criminales terminan
0: We were all mistaken, that song Fuerza Absoletas, from that album by various artists to accompany the new Rasa database project, which we are talking about now. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan González. As we turn to a shocking new report that estimates 35,000 people have been killed by law enforcement in the U.S. since the year 2000, and that the number of brown and black people killed by police may be more than double the amount widely reported. The ASA database project was founded by the late Roberto Rodriguez, also known as Dr. Sintley, who died in July Rodriguez was associate professor of Mexican-American studies at the University of Arizona, who himself survived a brutal police assault in 1979 when Los Angeles sheriff deputies beat him for taking pictures of them beating another man. He spent the rest of his life fighting police brutality and writing about Chicano culture. In 2021, he joined Democracy Now! to discuss how preliminary findings of the RASA database project's report show deaths of Latinx and indigenous people at the hands of police were undercounted by a quarter to one-third in national databases and were virtually ignored by the media.
4: One of the things that we, we asked ourselves as a group should we count all deaths, you know, in custody, etc.? And everybody said yes. And now personally I wanted just the ones that are unjustified. But how do you get how do you determine what's unjustified when you don't have a judicial system that works? You know, it's it's like a I would say ninety-nine point nine percent impunity. Both in the killings that we examine and also the border patrol. You know, you can count in one hand with a, a finger or two to spare of police officers that are doing hard time, say 30, 40, 50 years to life. You know, I doubt there's even five. Uh, I personally, I think that's the actual solution. Until you see that, you're not going to see anything. No reform is going to fix anything because all the, all the cop has to say is, I feared for my life, you know? and that absolves everything.
0: The late Professor Roberto Sintli Rodriguez, fondly referred to as Dr. Sintley. For more on the formal release of the Rasa Data Project, Database Project, we're joined by its project manager, um, Yvette Sociot. Boizo, a mental health patient and civil and human rights advocate, and Jesus Garcia, demographer, statistician on the project. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Um, Jesus, let's begin with you. Explain what you found.
2: Yes, Amy Juan, thank you very much for this opportunity to, to be here with you. So uh, Roberto asked me to participate in this project on a volunteer basis, and uh, he more or less, as you heard knew what the subject matter was but he wasn't able to you know articulate the statistics and so over the past two years i've been looking at uh, data from open source information um, and what I, the results are that uh, the latino population of people killed um, spanish surname um, is at about 6, 6 uh, between the year 2000 and uh, 2022 That's um, an over 2,000 increase from what some estimates say at about 4,500. Equally important here is the Asian population count. The Asian population count has gone from just about under 500, under old methodologies, to over 2,000 deaths, a 75% increase. So our goal with this project was to not only address – the uh, the the missing information for Latinos, but overall, and see the impact on all our communities of color, all our disenfranchised people. And and uh, to tell you the truth, this has been a very difficult project to work on. Uh, personally, um, this is not my forte, but uh, Roberto asked me to participate in this project, and and I think the results are uh, pretty groundbreaking, and they're the beginning, not the end of uh, this further discussions on this. Decision
6: and Hesu Garcia, I wanted to ask you in terms of the increases in numbers, uh, could you talk about what were the the weaknesses of the pr- uh, previous counts? Such as, for instance, the Washington Post's a big study that they did about police deaths. You found that there were a significant number of people who were listed as uh, with no racial identity initially or as other and that you were able to track down more clearly uh, their uh, ethnic or or racial uh, uh, origin. Uh, uh, Talk about that process.
2: Yes, absolutely. So, first of all, there is no federal standard for collection of this information. There's no federal department at the Department of Justice or a Center for Disease Control or the like. So the task of collecting data as it is, has fallen on these open sources and and in fact on individuals. So I'm talking about Fatal Encounters website, uh, Mapping Police Violence, and obviously you've mentioned the uh, Washington Post and and The Guardian and others. But in the collection of this information, um, it's compiled by Basically, independent people. And I think this is a, a very good reason for having good independent media. Be- without a federal collection, independent media, independent sources are the ones that have compiled a list. So when you're doing these sorts of crowdsourcing information, there's going to be gaps. And uh, a big gap are things like um, the race, ethnicity of an individual. In many cases, there are no names, the location. And so there's a host of issues with the data. And so what I was able to do was to merge these different data sets into one. And then uh, having worked at the U.S. Census Bureau, and because of my background, I was able to then try to assign Uh, Missing race and Hispanic race and ethnicity based on the US Census Bureau's 160,000 surname lists. And so, uh, as I mentioned, it's taken two years to get to this point, but it's because of Independent sources. I also need to thank the Cal State University and the technology tools. These things are not easy to do. It takes specialized skills, and we just have been able to, to assemble a team of people and technologies to get us to this point. So, uh, the data I feel are fairly accurate. Um, there's, as I mentioned, there's much more to do, but I, I stand by the counts that we have, and so it's a, again, they're terrible, terrible numbers to look at, but I think, like anything else, it's a beginning of hopefully the healing of this very difficult uh, time in our in our country here.
0: I I wanted
6: and to bring in terms. Yeah, I just wanted to ask, Jesus Garcia, you also found a a significant increase in the number of whites killed by police, didn't you, in your your study?
2: Yes, Uh, the initial data um, of over 33,000 deaths included over 9,000 unknown or other. And so, again, it, it, and, and included in that count was uh, white ethnicity at about 11,300. Uh, over the course of the new results, I was able to supplement that count by over by nearly 5,000 uh, individuals. So the current count of people classified as white, non-Hispanic, is, is over 16,000 people. They comprise uh, 50% of the deaths. Uh, One one thing that I have to note among the African-American population is African-Americans in the population represent about 12 percent. Of the U.S. population. They are, however, 24% or a quarter of all of that. So no matter what you may think out there politically, the data are clear that there is something happening that is greatly impacting our African-American community. And, you know, the results are stark and bare. So yes, the white count did increase, but so did all the other uh, accounts for race ethnicity.
0: I wanted to bring Socio into this conversation, Yvette Boizot, the project manager for the Lhasa Database Project. Um, Two things. It's Hispanic Heritage Month and the significance of Roberto Rodriguez and all of his work. So sorry that we weren't also speaking to him today uh, um, uh, since he was going to bring us the final report. But he uh, we lost him in the last years. Um, His significance, his imprint on this, but also in particular, Yvette Boiseau, if you could talk about the sexual violence against particularly migrant women.
4: Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, I think uh, the the report itself, the research that we've done, is groundbreaking. It's revolutionary in itself. Unfortunately, it's only given police brutality that we can actually prove, and one of the only type types of violences that we have uh, data for. We don't have an actual account or any type of data when it comes to the violence against women. And and especially when it comes to migrants, which is even more alarming because, as you know, uh, there's forced sterilizations within the detention centers. uh, Women that have been forcefully sterilized as part of their probation terms in this country. So when we look at the people being affected mostly by these type of genocidal practices, it's women of color. So if, if you ask me, the, under international law, these are crimes against humanity. This is a genocide. And it's so unfortunate that there's not any type of actual collection of information against these types of violences and crimes against humanity. And could
6: you, what was most surprising to you as you were compiling the data uh, and, uh, and getting a final report?
4: I think, um, unfortunately, there was not much of a surprise. I think within our communities, the indigenous community, the migrant community, the undocumented community, any community of the color, this is just a mere reflection of the truth that we have known for a long time. We know that violence has existed from the conception of this country, and it just continues to evolve and take a different name and role. I think what's the most disturbing out of all of this, it's the impunity rate and how the judicial system has been set in place to hold people accountable, and that people are supposed to be innocent and to prove guilty, and yet we see people that have a weapon and a badge and they determine who lives and dies basically under their discretion with no proper training, with no adequate tools And this is affecting thousands and thousands of people in the United States.
0: So, Sheila, we we have to um, end here, but we're going to conduct this interview in Spanish as well. And we'll post it at democracynow.org. Yvette Boizo, project manager for La Raza Database Project, and Jesus Garcia, demographer and statistician on the project. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us.